Daniel chapter 6 is where we are. Um, and I do have a little slideshow to show you so we can bring that up. Um, we'll get to that in one second. <clears throat> Daniel chapter 6. Um, it's a story. It's actually the last story of what you might say is reality or real life experience. Because after chapter six, you get into visions, you get into dreams, you get into angels coming and going and talking with Daniel, and it gets crazy. <laughs> you get into prophecies and you're like, woo, what are we talking about? So here is the, for those of you who like to stay grounded, for those of you who like stories about personal life experiences, this is it for Daniel. <laughs> this is it for Daniel. After that, we enter into the, the spiritual world, the, 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 the conversation between Daniel and so many different things and all the things the Lord allows him to see and interpret and go back and forth with. And so here is that last, you would say, maybe dose of reality. <clears throat> but what have I told you? Daniel 6 is more than just a cool Sunday school story. What have I told you? It's more than just a tagline or a title for a song or a hymn. What have I told you? It's more than just a miracle of shutting lion's mouths. What have I told you? Daniel 6 is a summary and fitting capture or capstone to Daniel's life in exile. What have I told you? Daniel had been in the proverbial lion's den with all the all he experienced with Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, and a transition of empires and power. And what have I told you? That Daniel chapter 6 was a fitting climax to life experience, life experiences that shaped his godly character. We see here on the PowerPoint some uh, stadiums. Go ahead, Dan, the first one up. What we would call proverbial lion's dens in the sporting world. The first one up you see is, is a very famous one. In fact, they just played the uh, Copa America final here. Uh, it's in Rio de, Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, the Maracanã. It's actually the home of Brazil. Um, Brazil never lost in a final at this place, in a Copa America final or World Cup final, until last week when it lost to Argentina. one nothing. Oh, boy. That's, that's an upset. 78,300 or 78,838 people, 79,000 squeeze them in. Old bowl type stadium, you know, 1950s architecture, everything made to just come down onto the field, all the noise, all the fanfare. And obviously we know it, it, they can get raucous down there in South America. You know, so this is an intimidating place to play. Next, next stadium, Estadio Azteca. Uh, in Mexico City, Mexico, if you ever followed the United States men's soccer team, they play a lot of their World Cup qualifying matches here, especially when they're at Mexico. Um, it is 7,000 feet above sea level. It is actually higher than Mile High Stadium in Denver. Um, also, more people than the Matacana, 87,523, with basically everybody coming down on top of you. You don't see here enclosed in this picture there are fences or pens to basically keep fans separated from each other and also to keep you from getting onto the field. You can ask any American player who's ever played there. You get everything thrown at you from garbage to things you can't even say, like enema bags. What a, what a place to go play, right? 
What a place to go visit. Not on your things that you would want a vacation at. But that's the environment. Once again, crazy, loud, nonstop throughout the game. Next stadium. This is the Lambombonera. Uh, Ricardo Orochi would know this well because his favorite team, River Plate, plays in this stadium as visitors. Uh, this is the home of Boca Juniors in Buenos Aires, Argentina, in the Argentine Soccer League, built in 1940. As you can see, it's kind of like a half a U with a flat wall. 40,000 people. Built basically to feel like everyone is right on top of you. Every fan is sitting on the field. Every fan could pretty much reach out and touch the players and touch the ball. Every, you know, that kind of stadium, that kind of noise, old, rickety, not really welcoming to the visiting team or crowd. Very intimidating, very intense. You know, I wanted to show some of these stadiums because, you know, this is the time of year where we see all these soccer tournaments happening from the Copa America to the Euros to the Gold Cup, which the United States is in. And then next year, obviously, we'll have the World Cup. All these places are intimidating. You see, it's actually 54,000 people. It was 40,000 back in the day, but now it's 54,000. But still, it's tight. It's packed. It's made to make sure that the noise and the experience is unpleasant for the visiting team. Last one. A little more local. <laughs> Not a soccer stadium. This is a picture of the rack, known as Rutgers Athletics Athletic Center or the Lewis Brown Athletic Center, or recently the trapezoid of terror. If you drive by this place on Livingston Campus in Piscataway, New Jersey, only about 20 minutes away, it's a trapezoid of concrete. Doesn't have any much appeal on the outside, but the 8,000 people who pack into it, and this is a game, I think, when they upset Maryland, uh, two years ago before the pandemic, before the tournament got canceled, um, or a year ago, uh, this place gets loud. This place is designed to make sure that all the noise from up on high and from anywhere in the arena comes right back down onto the court. We were at a game against Penn State. Penn State was up by eight, I remember, and the crowd started, to, the record started to make a run. The crowd started to surge. And let's just say that was the end of the story. Rutgers went on to win. In fact, it was so loud at one point, I couldn't even hear myself scream. It had just been encompassed in all the other cacophony of noise. But these places, these proverbial sports lion's dens are made to intimidate the opponent. They are made to make your experience uncomfortable. They create an intense and loud atmosphere. One that just doesn't test your hearing, or your physical play, but one that tests your mental fortitude. One that says, can you keep it all together while all this craziness is literally being rained down upon you? Can you focus on your opponent? Can you survive? Can you do what you've been called to do in this dangerous and unwelcoming place, in this ferocious place? Now we know many players' careers have been made have been celebrated because how they handle places like this. But we also know many career, many players' careers have been basically knocked down a peg because the stadiums that they played in these visiting places, they weren't able to perform. It got the best of them. It ate them alive. Last photo. Daniel 6, 
the lion's den. Medo-Persian Empire, capacity unknown. Who knows how many lions were in there? Who knows how many people you could fit in there? But obviously, we know the reasoning behind it. Um, More ferocious than a sporting venue. And obviously, a place that no one is expected to come out alive. No one is to survive. No one is going to be spared from the powerful jaws of those lions. <laughs> that's, that's, that's Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6 is that culmination of the lion's den. And we'll just leave that picture up as we go throughout here. So in Daniel 6, we see right off at the beginning here, in chapter 1, we see a change of empire, right? Belshazzar, as we know, as we left off in chapter 5, is is killed, and the Medo-Persians come in, and Darius is now, at the age of 62, in charge of this newly founded empire. And it says this in verse 1, it says, Darius decided to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom, stationed throughout the realm, and over them three administrators, including Daniel. These satraps would be accountable to them so that the king would not be defrauded. Daniel distinguished himself above the administrators and satraps because he had an extraordinary spirit. So the king planned to set him over the whole realm. The administrators and satraps, therefore, kept trying to find a charge against Daniel regarding the kingdom. But they could find no charge of corruption or corruption, for he was trustworthy and no negligence or corruption was found in him. That's Daniel, right? Skipping down to verse 10. When Daniel learned that the document had been signed, he went into his house. The windows in his upstairs room opened toward Jerusalem. And three times a day, he got down on his knees, prayed, and gave thanks to God, just as he had always done. Then these men went out as a group and found Daniel petitioning and imploring his God. Skipping over to verse 16. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, may your God, whom you continually serve, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den. The king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet rings of his nobles, so that nothing in regard to Daniel could be changed. Then the king went into his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and he could not sleep. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he reached the den, he cried out in anguish to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, the king said, has your God, whom you continually serve, been able to rescue you from the lions? Then Daniel spoke with the king. May the king live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they haven't harmed me, for I was found innocent before him, and also before you, your majesty. I have not done harm. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to take Daniel out of the den. When Daniel was brought up from the den, he was found to be unharmed, for he trusted in his God. And all the way down to verse 28. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. The summary of this story, the summary of this chapter, we would say is quite simple, right? Medo-Persian Empire takes over. Darius is in charge at the age of 62, probably almost the same age as Daniel or very similar maybe in the same ballpark. We see that Darius places Daniel as one of his lead satraps, one of his lead noblemen, one of his lead administrators. And we see that once again, just like he did under the previous kings of Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, Daniel rises to the top based upon who he is and what he does. 
And basically, Daniel becomes Darius's right-hand man. Other satraps and the other nobles are envious, right? They can't find a way to, to harm Daniel. They can't find a way to bring him down. They can't find anything wrong with him. He's too perfect. He's too powerful. He's not us. We don't like this. He needs to go. <clears throat> they scheme up a plan to trick Darius with a law that will soothe Darius's ears, right? 30 days, only pray to Darius, only worship Darius. No one else. Sounds familiar, right? Darius takes the bait and signs and seals the law. Daniel hears about the law, goes into his room with open window and prays just like he's always done. The satraps, knowing who Daniel is, go to find him and find him doing exactly this and report it to the king. Darius then tries to find a way around it, but can't go back on it. He's pressured. Can't go back on his word and the law that he has sealed. So he has Daniel thrown into the lion's den. He says some encouraging things to Daniel and closes the lid. Darius doesn't sleep all night. And in the morning, he wakes up to see what happens. And he finds out Daniel is alive and God has delivered him. In fact, God sent an angel to keep the mouth shut. Daniel is pulled out. The satraps who devised the plan and their families are thrown in and immediately destroyed. Darius says nice things about Daniel and then worships God. Who's up? Daniel lives out his days all the way into the reign of Cyprus. We would say that's the end. We would say good night. Drive home safely. Let's close in prayer, right? That's the story. That's the summary. Huzzah. Daniel triumphs. The Lord triumphs. Great. We can go home. There's a little bit more to it than that. There's a little bit more to it than that. If that's all we see in Daniel and the lions, then I think we're missing the whole point of why we've been doing the book of Daniel. If all we see is a cool story where Daniel is delivered, proven right, and where God is proven right, then I think we miss the point. All that is important because it is. But I think there's a little bit more than just that. So when we look at Daniel 6 and we look at this story of the lion's den, as I mentioned, Daniel has been basically living in a lion's den all his life, living in exile. And a lot of that time, we see a lot of details, a lot of characteristics come out in who he is. We see that they distinguish him above everyone else. They make him different, he and his friends. And we see that he rises to the top. And a lot of those things we think are great. They're wonderful. They're amazing. But I can never be like that. I can never do that. Daniel's just a different dude. He's just more holier than me. He's just on another spiritual level. We like to say those things about people who we think are. I can never be like Daniel in this situation. But you know what? Everything that Daniel does, everything that makes him stand out, is everything that we see happen throughout scripture, everything we see with people of faith, people who follow God and and live a life for him and and leave a great glorious example and point others to him. Some of those things that we notice about Daniel, especially as they play out in this chapter, is his faithfulness to God, his faithfulness to God in chapter one in the food challenge. We know that he determined not to defile himself with the king's food because he wanted to stay sanctified and holy to God. In chapter two, we see in the dream challenge, he prays to God, right? He turns to God with his friends to help him to tell what the dream is and then interpret it. In chapter three, in the worship challenge, 
even though he's not mentioned or even though he's not on the scene, we see the impact of his faithfulness and what it has on his three friends and how they won't worship Nebuchadnezzar, but only God, and which one would assume that Daniel held the same position as them, not worshiping anyone else other than God alone. Chapter four, we see the dream challenge part two, the sequel. You know, he shares the alarming truth of what God will do with Nebuchadnezzar and his empire if Nebuchadnezzar doesn't repent and worship God. Chapter five, the handwriting challenge, shares the sobering truth that Belshazzar has continued in sin, not learned the lessons of Nebuchadnezzar, not turned to God, but mocked him. And now God, who controls the whole course of his life and all life, and is a ruler over all kingdoms of the world, is going to take Belshazzar out and his kingdom as well as judgment and give it to the Medes and Persians. And then finally, in chapter six, in the worship challenge, part two, we see that even with this new law about praying to Darius and worshiping him only, which is punishable by death, Daniel still goes up into his room and prays to God. Praise to God. His faithfulness in all those moments. He doesn't really do anything extraordinary. Yes, he interprets dreams. Yes, he tells the meaning of the handwriting on the wall. But we see because of that, because of that happens because of his faithfulness to his God, his faithfulness in prayer, his faithfulness in worship, his faithfulness in knowing who he is and who he belongs to. Another characteristic is that we see that Daniel is cool in the face of danger. And death. He remains steady. He remains calm. May we all be like that. And all the experiences that we had and all those experiences we just listed and all those chapters and all that he went through from the food to the dream interpretations to worship and prayer laws, he faced danger and death at every turn. If the food thing doesn't go well, if he doesn't become as good or better than the men of Babylon, guess what? (laughs) Bye-bye. If an interpretation he gives does not please Nebuchadnezzar's ear or Belshazzar's ear, bye-bye. He faced death and saying, I'm not going to worship you, king. I'm not going to, to worship anybody other than God, God, knowing that I will face death. We know Nebuchadnezzar tried, and so did Darius, to no avail. <laughs> death in every moment, danger in every moment. But yet, in all of it, he stays calm. He stays cool. He stays, as the Bible says in 1 Peter, sober-minded. Sober-minded. And we see it in how he answers the kings. We see it in how he prays. We see in how he shares the truth and what needs to be shared. His demeanor never changes. And we look at the lions then, and we see that he never complains, right? They literally. It says they catch him praying, and literally the next thing we know, he's being thrown into the lion's den, and we never hear a complaint out of Daniel. It's never recorded. He gets thrown in, gets shut, no complaints. Stays calm, stays cool. We see he has a well-known, a well-distinguished reputation. We see that that food challenge in chapter 1 leaves him and his friends in better shape than others physically, mentally, spiritually. We see that he is always called in to handle things no one else can handle, from dream interpretations to freaky handwritten messages. 
We see that he survives and moves up the ladder under multiple kings and empires. And that's not just because he knew somebody. That's because of who his character was, what his reputation was. And we see that he is praised and rewarded for how he handles and how he survives certain situations, both by his kings, his worldly kings, and also by the king of kings. And then we see that he glorifies God in all he does and causes others to glorify God in return. He has a distinguished reputation. And then we see that Daniel doesn't rely on empire or kings or rulers to deliver, but just God alone. He never states or thinks that the kings and the empires he was ruled by would actually look out for him. He knew not to trust them. He knew they could turn at the drop of a hat. See Darius. Darius was supposed to be a good guy. Darius was supposed to be the king. He wasn't Nebuchadnezzar. He wasn't Belshazzar. He wasn't supposed to allow those things to happen. But you know what? When he got a law that sounded good to him, boom, snap of a finger, drop of a hat, he changed his mind. Sign that law. Sign that law. Anybody who doesn't worship me, dead. In a moment, he does that. Puts a seal on it. Daniel knew who he was dealing with. Daniel knew they couldn't deliver. He knew only God would deliver him. And we see that God did it time and time again. And it was to show Daniel and others who is in control and who is really looking out for his people. I'm sure if Daniel were alive today, he would say, listen, you can't sit there and say one party or one president is going to help the Christian faith in America. It's going to stand up for the Christian faith in America. You're fooling yourselves. You're dreaming. It's a fantasy. Why? Because it didn't happen back then. And the world hasn't changed, right? The world hasn't changed. If we're all we don't like to hear this, America is its own empire. America has its own empire. We know this. If we look at the political course of the world, we know this. America has fallen into just like all those other things. We're a powerful country in the world. We're a big world player. What we say goes. Sorry, folks, in studying history, that equates to empire. And that's just like all the other kingdoms and rulers of this world. And Daniel knew that they would not deliver him, but only God would. And then finally, Daniel understood and showed what it means to live in exile. Daniel, both physically and spiritually, exemplified the exile life. In the words of Larry Norman, he was a stranger in a strange land. He was surrounded by worship of strange gods. He was surrounded by totally different people and different rules and different customs. He continued to live out and be the godly example to those around him, no matter the circumstances and no matter the pressure. We see it in the last verse of chapter 6 and 28, where it says, Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. He prospered. He prospered in exile. He never got back to his homeland. When Cyrus makes the decree that the Lord tells him to make that we read in Ezra, Daniel is not in that group. Daniel doesn't go back. Daniel continues to live in exile all the days of his life without ever making it home, knowing that he has a far better home than what this world has to offer. And as we look at Daniel, we look at the lion's den, he truly does leave us with that exile 
example. We read in Hebrews 11.13, the great faith chapter, right? We call it the great faith chapter with all the names listed. All the names that are listed. However, Daniel is not listed among them. I'm like, why did he get omitted? You know, all the stuff he went through, man, why'd you leave him out? But in verse 13, it says this, these all died in faith, although they had not received the things that they were promised, but they saw them from a distance, greeted them and confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents or exiles on the earth. Daniel might not be mentioned in chapter 11 by name, but you know what? Verse 13 here of Hebrews 11, Daniel lived it out. You could say Daniel, he died in faith. He had not received the things they were promised. He didn't get back to Israel. He didn't get back to the homeland, but he saw them from a distance, greeted them and confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents on earth. Daniel knew his situation and he knew I'm in exile. I can't complain about it. I can't whine about it. It won't do me any good and it won't bring God glory. I need to be that example. I need to trust God no matter where I am, no matter whom I'm amongst. I need to be that godly example. I need to be that stranger in a strange land. I need to show people that I belong to someone and something far better than what any empire or ruler has to offer. We also read in First Peter chapter 2, another couple of verses on exile. It says this in First Peter chapter 2, 11. Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. As exiles... Peter's whole letter is about exiles. In fact, that's how he starts his letter, right? He says, to those of you who are in exile abroad, he's not talking about cultural exile. He's talking about spiritual exile. To those of you who live in a world that you truly don't belong in, to your truly that is not your home. And so he says, dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from those sinful desires and to have honorable conduct to those around you and to do good and glorify God so that others may do the same. Live this out as exiles. Those of you who trust in God, you are an exile in a world that trusts in so many other things. The example that Daniel lays out, that Daniel follows, that Daniel basically embodies, helped him to handle all his experiences, even when he's being thrown in the lion's den. And even in the midst of that, He keeps his godly character and his godly conduct. He says, hey, the Lord delivered me. He sent an angel. He shut the mouth because I was innocent before him and before you, O king. You could say that the lion's den was the climax of a consistent career that took place in some intimidating, intense, loud, and ferocious places of which could have eaten him alive. Physically, spiritually, mentally. But he always came out. He always survived. And he always kept going in faithfulness to his God. So as we close, let's ask ourselves, what are the lion's dens that we face? 
What are the lion's dens in our lives? What are the areas or the places where we have opportunities to live out like Daniel? Maybe it's the workplace. Maybe it's the neighborhood. Maybe it's a school. How do we respond in those moments and in those places? What do we turn to? What do we trust in? Do we get eaten alive or do we get delivered? It all depends upon who we trust in. Do we glorify ourselves or a system or an ideology or a pattern? Or do we glorify God? And in so doing, do we cause others to glorify God as well? When we look at Daniel and the lions then, Daniel chapter 6. Maybe we, may we be encouraged, may we be challenged to live out a life as exiles, strangers in a strange land, knowing that what we have in Christ, knowing that what we have in God through salvation, through sanctification, through the promises of his word, may we live out a life that shows this world we have something far better, that we look to something far better and we believe in something far better. And that is the God of this world, that is the God who loves us, who gave himself for us, the God who wants to bring people unto himself, to have a people for his very own, eager to do good works. Do we show the world, do we cause the world to notice our Savior by the exemplary exile conduct that we've been called to live? Daniel did. He was an ordinary guy. But we see throughout his characteristics, we see throughout his faithfulness to God and his coolness and calmness in those moments, trusting in God, coming before God, worshiping God alone. We see that he was able to do that. And we see time and time again, he was delivered. And time and time again, he drew others to glorify and praise God. Men who were the most foul, from Nebuchadnezzar to Belshazzar, to Darius, men who had no idea or want on who God was and what God wanted. They only wanted what empire was and what they wanted. But these men saw who Daniel was and said, he believes in the most high God. He believes in the one true God, and he is the one who should be worshiped alone. May we do that. May we live out our lives in these lion's dens that we face every day in a way that draws others to God and brings glory to him, no matter what happens, no matter the circumstances, no matter who we encounter. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for this time. We're thankful for your word. We're thankful for this story, Lord. And we are are thankful that even though it's a cool story of someone being miraculously delivered from a den of starving, ravenous lions, Lord, it, it goes far deeper and far greater than that, Lord. It shows how we should live out a life of godly character in a world that doesn't want to do so, in a world that we shouldn't expect to do so, in a world that looks to eat us alive mentally, spiritually, physically, by whatever means, whether it be new social norms or new societal norms or new government or new promises or new players on the scene, on the political scene. Lord, may we understand that it is you who we need to trust and trust alone. It is you that we need to be faithful to. It is you that we need to represent 
It is you that we have a greater world in. It is you that we have a greater life in than anything else that this world offers today. It is all because of you that we can do these things, that we can live out just like Daniel. So help us, Lord, we pray. Give us the wisdom. Give us the strength. Give us the sober-mindedness. Help us to live out as strangers in a strange land and show and point others to you. Help us to truly be the lights of the world, those cities that are set on a hill so that when others see our good works in Jesus Christ, they may praise and glorify our Father in heaven and be drawn to him just the same. So help us, we pray, Lord. Help us to be Daniels, wherever we may be, whatever lion's den we may face, and help us to do it in such a way that always glorifies you and points others to you. We ask and pray these things in your name. Amen.